Fighting Through Episode 22, a second coffee with World War II veteran Wilf Shaw. More great unpublished history. A patrol, a German patrol coming in the opposite direction, you know. They were wheeling a field, piece of field artillery and pointing in our direction, like. The sand, the fine sand used to stick to them. And I remember looking round at the blokes and they were just like graven images, you know. One officer described Falaise. He said he was virtually walking on dead bodies. Our bed were the horses' stables. I'll tell you what my mate said. He said, I can just imagine this horse. All bollocks and backbones. <laughs> Hello again, I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's war in some way, and much more. You've just been listening to a few previews from this episode in which I'm bringing you another meeting with World War II veteran Wilf Shaw, together with a special guest. More details in a minute. I first met Wilf in episode 4 of the show, so if you haven't listened to that yet, it might be worth doing so first. Today I'm starting up a new occasional feature in the show. It's called the My Relative Was In The War And They Once Told Me dot 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 feature it's inspired by Teresa Stroker who wrote in recently with a short story about her dad Um, she said my dad was Corporal Stewart in the Green Howards I've been reading your dad's book and there was a photo of my dad on your website I knew he was a corporal but I didn't know his nickname was Blackie Dad died in 1987 and he never spoke about the war. He was from Glasgow but settled in England after the war and met my mum. I think he would have been known as Jock. I remember when I was young a man knocked at the door. He'd been looking for Dad to thank him. As this man had been injured in the war and Dad had thrown him onto a lorry so that he would get to safety. Isn't that a nice little side story coming out of Dad's book? The photo that Therese is referring to is one of Wilf's and I've put the pair of them in touch so Wilf can tell her a few things. I've put the pic in the show notes. It's located at Kassassin Camp in Egypt which my dad described as that bugbear of all British troops newly arrived in the Middle East. It was alleged if you hadn't already got Jippy Tummy this was the place you could expect it. I've put another pic of Wilf's in the show notes of the camp's cooks. The food was all their fault. 
Um, that's it for the uh, my relative was in the war and they said that dot 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 feature. If your dad, granddad, mum or grandma or anyone you know for that matter has a little anecdote you'd like to share, please write in using the contact button at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. You can send an email or a voice file or even use the speak pipe facility you'll find there if you wish to. It's feedback time. Um, I've got a note here from Kevin Kay in the USA. And Kevin says uh, via iTunes, This is my fourth time listening through, and every time is better than the first. This is a great series, giving the real amazing perspective, and I hope the episodes never stop coming. Great job. Well, thanks, Kevin, and I'm flabbergasted that you've listened to the show four times through. Warts and all, I guess, because I know from my own multiple listens that it's not perfect. But then, as I once read, no one expects perfection, just a damn sight less imperfection. There's a gobbledygook thought for the week for everyone. This next bit of feedback relates directly to a special request I'm about to make of all listeners to the show. It came from Gary North. And uh, Gary is saying, I'm not sure how I can support your podcast. I don't have any war material or deep pockets for that matter, lad. That being said, I appreciate there is cost for equipment and petrol and all that nonsense. And I came to your website looking to disperse a bit of that cost, however small. I don't wish to embarrass you, and I know that this isn't what it's all about. But if there's a way to keep you contributing to social history with a couple of quid for a pint for the old boy, I'd be pleased if you'd let me know. Listener, I think he's referring to Wilf Shaw there. I'm grateful for what you do, and I'm grateful for the time and attention you give these boys sat in their old folks' homes when their families are sick to death of their bloody war stories. I'm not daft. I know that you're trying to make a go of this for yourself, so help yourself and make it easy for us daft old devils to contribute financially. If I can buy these veterans a pint and save you shelling out, let me know. I hope this takes off for you and that you source funds in the right way, because too right your time and efforts need recompense. Best regards, Gary, aged 38 and three quarters. Well, Gary, aged 38 and three quarters, uh, I really do appreciate the time you took to write. And I do spend a lot producing this show, both for materials and particularly time. So far, it's been a labour of love getting the show out. Uh, maybe no different to any other hobby, but most of the shows have been very labour intensive, often involving reading through a handwritten script and even paying a typist to transcribe them for me. But I expend many, many hours on each show, so if you, listener, enjoy listening as much as you do reading your favourite paid-for magazine, then please do consider sponsoring the show for a dollar or so per month. I've got some special rewards on offer for all those people who are kind enough to fund me. If you wish to do so by making a small monthly payment, go to patreon.com slash fighting through where you'll find full details. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash fighting through. Or just go to the fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk website and click on the donate button. I'm going to crack on now, and please stay to the end so you don't miss the usual postscript. 
This episode, I'm having a chat with 97-year-old Wolf Shaw, a World War II veteran who has more stories to tell us. Also joining us is Wilf's friend Leslie Littlewood, whose father was also in World War II as a soldier with 56 Reconnaissance Battalion. He was Ernest Illingworth, and 56 Recce, as it was called, was part of the 78th Division, commonly known as the Battle Axe Division. He drove a Bren carrier, and he fought from November 1942 with Operation Torch in North Africa, Sicily, and up all through Italy to 1946. So Leslie's as interested in Wilf and the war as I am, so we're both hoping to have an interesting chat. Wilf is 97 years of age in 2017, and still trespassing, as he puts it himself, and he's a resident of Oldham in Manchester, England. He joined the British Army in 1940, just after Dunkirk, joining 6th Battalion the Green Howards as part of 50th Infantry Division. He fought pretty much throughout the whole war in many campaigns, including fighting for Monty's 8th Army in Alamein, Wadi Akarat in Tunisia, Sicily, and of course Normandy. He was wounded twice and still returned to battle. What makes Wilf's memories very special for me are the parallels with my own dad's war. They served in the same battalion and fought in most of the same battles. I hope you enjoy. I've got a surprise for you today. I told you you'd have a surprise for you today. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Well, oh. well I was gonna, I've got a couple of surprises. Mm. This is one just to show you something. Does that bring back any memories? Mm. What is it? Oh, obviously not then. <laughs> but it's my dad's old army mirror. Oh. Listener, if you're just wondering about that uh, mirror, it's a, it's a metal chrome-plated mirror not a, a glass one so that does, does explain why it's next to dad's heart he used to keep that next to his heart yeah. throughout, huh? throughout the war yeah oh got no bullet holes in it, it no it hasn't no never got used in action thought uh, did you not have one of those then no i never had one i'll tell you what we did though. they give us a wristwatch did they i think i might have told you before they give us a wristwatch um service wristwatch it was the one, one thing you had to hang on to uh, if you were ever taken prisoner, because you could you could sort out your uh, uh, your location with with the wristwatch. You point the hour around at the oh, sun, right. and uh, you divide the hour on between twelve o'clock and the hour on is due south. Yeah. Right. Okay. You never got captured though, did you? No, I didn't yeah. get captured, no, no. But it says when, when um, to waterproof it, tell me last time, you used to put a Durex over the top of it. No, you used to put a condom uh, over the top of it. I, well, I was just going to sell him that. Sorry, yeah. I thought you finished to tell that story. I, uh, just prior to invading Sicily, <laughs> the issue was with condoms, you know, Yeah. to put a wristwatch in, you know. <laughs> But just pre- watch for no else. Previous to them telling us what they were for, we, we, we had other <laughs> ideas about them. Yeah, you did, didn't you? <laughs> I remember uh, reading a story, there's a book, I think it's Ray Morgan, wrote a book on Stan Hollis, the VC winner. And uh, there's a story about Hollis that when they were handing out condoms just before D-Day, going over on the landing craft or whatever, I think, I think they were meant to be to put over your end of your gun and stuff but Hollis 
said, uh, I'll, I'll soften the language a bit. He said, Are we going to shag the Germans or shoot them? <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't get a chance, did he, really? Actually, Legs, you're doing um, a tour what's taking more in of Stan Hollis's movement next year. You know, Legs, you're expanding the brochure and they're doing more, more stuff next year. They're expanding the D Day stuff and right. what have you. I've never, do you know, I've never been on a war on a battleground oh, thing. That one I went on, the Italy one. Paul Reed's fantastic. Mm. He's absolutely, you know. Oh, you, you've never seen see any of the cemeteries abroad. Oh, yeah. But you can't see, yeah. you know, the ground, there's nothing to see anymore. No, but he and it's tells you. To, he, you know, you can sort of envisage it when he's there. Yeah. Probably a bit more at Casino, because as you go up to... Cavendish Road and up there you can see it's still going the path and there's a there's the old Sherman tank up there and that so you can actually see this w- was this Sicily did you say or Italy 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 up round sort of Mont- right. Casino and you know and then went to Anzio and Salerno and I, I don't know anything about what your dad did my dad were in Backlacks Division 78 right so we're in um 8th Army, 8th Army, Yeah, 78, it was in 78, Dave, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, um, I remember that. What is it? 8th Army at Italy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah no, so yeah, we first, eight, first eight, Army yeah. at North Africa. But a lot of the 8th Army in Italy uh, didn't take part in anything in the in the desert, only at the latter end, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, they did North Africa from November 42, Operation Torch, which were after Alamein, second Alamein. Um, then they went to Sicily for a month, and then all the way up through Italy. So did he land at Sicily on 10th of July? Yeah. Whatever it was, yeah. yeah. So your dad didn't meet Wills then? No, no, no. They were both in the six Green Howards, but... Yeah. Different. You what? You were in the signalers attached to. I was signal platoon. Signal platoon, which is headquarter company. Right. Signalers were always headquarter company, you know. Ah, okay. Right. So, so signalers were number one platoon in the battalion. So really. companies A, B, C, and D were they like? They were rifle companies. Oh, rifle companies. Okay, because Dad was in C company. Yeah, so we and then there was company. there was S company, specialist company, right? Which were brain gun carriers, mortars. Ah, oh, well, Dad was Dad was number one on the mortar on D Day, and at some time prior to that, he was, he, was, he went on the brain gun carrier course. Yeah. And he, so he was in charge of a brain gun as well, but he never said he was in anything other than. I think he was attached to headquarters company at some point. Mm-hmm. So did he drive bre- a, bre- a brain carrier? Pardon? Did he drive a brain carrier? He did, yeah. That's what my dad did. Did he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Universal carriers, aren't they? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's the same, it's the same name. I'm not sure if I'd recognise one if it drove over me. Oh, they're on that tiny little thing. Did you ever see it? I've, I've, I've looked at photographs and I've seen, you know... It's a really tiny thing. The carrier was just a small yeah, track yeah. vehicle, you know. I think Dad learned when he was in Egypt, because in his memoir he said that it was such a thrill to go up a sandbank and down the other side and that, you know, yeah. there's a fairly decent turn of speed. Yeah, yeah. Um, You're really lucky then, so he obviously told you a lot about his war. Yeah, obviously in the memoir. Yeah. Um, the only thing, you see, I was, whenever, when he was alive, I was always too young to take a look at as much as I should have done. Yeah. And now, I, I mean, we're, just, we're just so lucky we've got Will that we can sort of 
Pick I know, his is, that, is that me sitting down? We've been, all, we've been all over and walk around and took me to where he all grew up. How old were you? How old were you when your dad died? Uh, well, it was 1999 he died. I mean, I was old enough then, to be fair. Were you yeah. still as interested then at that time? Yeah. But at that point, see, you only know what you don't know when you learn what you do know. Yeah. And when he was alive I read his memoirs because he obviously he'd written them in fact while I was still alive while he was still alive he'd written three versions of them right which is my job when it came to it was to get to blend the three together and get them typed up um, but I didn't because I I just wasn't I was too busy working yeah and I, I just I, I went to Normandy what were you doing as a job in, then I, I was in insurance Insurance, yeah, oh, general insurance, right. car insurance, and stuff, and, and technology as well. Have you ever done a manual job? Uh, only digging the gardens, and oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, never, I've never been a, a labourer as such. So, you no. didn't really get right uh, into your dad's no. war then, you just um, I got it, I got it on the internet, funnily enough, when he was yeah. still alive, yeah. but that was the very early days of the internet. And I mean, he had he got a few emails from people. Around the world, who said they'd read it and said they enjoyed it, and that, that, that. Um, but I never. I mean, we went, we went to Normandy in 1994, the 50th together. anniversary together. Yeah, right. with my brother-in-law as well. How was on that? was How was on the 50th anniversary? Were you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You weren't that bloke with, with the umbrella, were you? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I tell you, it was a, it was a nice uh, time on the 50th anniversary. Everybody was so yeah. the atmosphere was. Terrific. Did he get quite emotional there then when he went? He did, unbelievably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, be well, not wasn't funny, but we went to the. Uh, did you go to the ceremony at Bayer where the Queen attended? No, if you remember. But there was a great big ceremony at the uh, with all the dignitaries arriving. And I got some good photographs of that, and then they had the service and you know prayers, etc. And uh, just before it finished, I could see that they'd lined up a load of professional camera people at one area, obviously to take photographs of the dignitaries. So as it was ending, and the dignitaries, which was the first and foremost the Queen, was walking over to this area, I ran over there too. And there was this reserved patch of lawn where no one should stand because that was like the that was the reserved area that in front of all the photographers there was photographers grass queen yeah. and, and <laughs> cheeky devil that I was only had an ordinary camera I went and stood in front of all the cameramen did yeah and yeah. on this piece of grass I've got this perfect picture of the queen surrounded by <laughs> Prince Philip and President Mitterrand and. Yeah some of the dignitary and it was a brilliant photograph yeah. and I, but all the cameramen were shouting at me to get tell me to get out of the way so I, I you know took my shot and then disappeared listener if you're curious about this photograph I'm referring to with the queen on um, I'm posting it in the show notes in all its full colour glory and um, and then I went back to my dad and at that point he, he was very emotional and, and I was cross with myself that I'd been fiddling off taking photographs when he, he was like feeling emotional. That's just sort of like but, this to Prince Harry when the 70th anniversary of 
casino. Oh, weird. Yeah. Oh, wow. and, uh, our, our Italian kids were all screaming and shouting at Prince Albert. Yeah. It was the 50th yeah. I went on, 50th anniversary. Yeah, this, this was the 50th. Yeah. And I went on, um, my dad had been on the 40th, but for some reason I couldn't go. Um, but he went with my sister and brother-in-law, so, and my mum went as well at the time. So uh, he wasn't without company. But yeah, just over those years, I wish I'd... Funnily enough, I did actually start transcribing it and merging the three but I just got too busy with life and I, and I, I had to drop yeah. it I missed out on uh, I missed out on my main ambition I wanted to be shot with a jealous husband when I, I were 90 <laughs> is this a northeast colloquialism do you mean shot by a jealous husband <laughs> shot when by a 90, jealous yeah. husband yeah, yeah that's what he wanted ah ok <laughs> You don't want to be shot with one, do you? <laughs> <laughs> People get the wrong idea. <laughs> this guy, Doug Gray, he talks about... Um, he uses a lot of slang in his diary. And at one point, they were in the, in the Normandy area. And he says, uh, a, shifty, a shifty kite went up and got tickled by a spandau, but they missed every time. And I spent like two weeks thinking, what the heck is a shifty kite? What do you think it might be? Do you know? Shifty kite. I, I know what it is now, I've worked this out. What's a spandau? Is that a bullet or something? Spandau's a machine. Automatic. Gun. Oh, yeah, I yeah, automatic. <laughs> yeah. I felt a brain gun and that's it. Sorry. They were, they were so fast, spandau. It was just like a piece of touring calico. The, oh, right. the problem they had with them, firing at that rate, was the heating of the barrel. And it, it gave them problems. Uh, Wasn't it a mounted one then? You know where it's one of them automatic ones where they go around? I think, though, I think it? it was mounted, yeah. It was mounted, wasn't it, a spandau? Spandau, uh, it was a bit like our oh, brain gun, really. Great, so what is it? A shifty? Shifty? Shifty kite. Kite. Shifty kite. K-I-T. Did you ever hear about a Neville worker? A 12-barrel mortar. <laughs> and when that, went, when that fired... It was the most frightening bloody sound you've ever heard in your life. Is that the... Nebelwerfer. Nebelwerfer. Morning Mini. Morning Mini, yeah. Right. That's right. It was Morning Mini, wasn't it? There you go, listener. That was a short sound clip of the notorious Nebelwerfer. Uh, thanks for bringing it up, Wilf. What a very scary racket. If you uh, want to see a Nebelwerfer in action, uh, just take a look on YouTube. I've put one or two links in the show notes at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. You're listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 22, A Second Coffee with Wilf Shaw. Back to Leslie. So what's a shifty kite then? Alright. If you if you were going to go to the shops and you thought it might be a bit busy, you might say somebody, I'll have a quick shifty and see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So a shifty, as you know, a shifty is a like a sneaky look. Quick look. A quick yeah. look. Yeah. Well, a kite was often a term slang for an aeroplane. 
So what do you think the shifty kite was? It's a reconnaissance aircraft. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. yeah. Quite obvious now you said it. I, I know it's... I don't know what suddenly shifty made kite. it click that I realised what it was. Oh. But, um, yeah, it has to be, hasn't it? Alakufik, did you ever hear that? Um, no. Alakufik, I'm, I'm easy, I'm anyway. I'm a Alakufic. Alright. That sounds like another Egyptian. Arabic. Arabic. Bardin, did you ever hear that? Bardin. 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 Bardin, no. No. In a short while. I'll be with you, Bardin. In a short while. So when did your dad die? When he was 65? Yeah, 88. Yeah. Did he get any wounds in the war or captured or anything? Nothing. Nothing. He never said, never said anything. Well, I never asked because I mean, we were only 34 when he died, so, yeah. you know, I mean, there were odd things when I look back, he might have said, just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but no specific. And I can't think about what comes to mind, but now and again I think, oh, my dad said that, and then I should have twigged. But and it was only because I were doing my genealogy. I thought, ask them for his service records when I, found, I don't know how I found that. I opened them up and just sat and cried. Because, oh. you know, you know, I didn't know when he joined, I didn't know what he'd done in the war. But now you do. Now and, and, and you then. Him oh yeah, Willie, yeah. Will, whether he's a said out, because I know he never went back. I don't know whatever happened to his medals. Yeah. See, I always thought he was in parachute regiment, um, but he wasn't parachute regiment, but not till after war. He came out of war and must have done a couple of, you know, years at Mill or whatever, yeah. because poor family, and then he joined parachute regiment at Thornbury Barracks. And he was a driver there, and I thought, oh, and then when I found out my dad was a friend driver. Because yeah. he never drove after, well, we never had a car, we could afford a car. Right. If we ever went, sit like to the bridge for a week, or out like that, we used to go on train when we were kids. Yeah. So, um, I didn't know anything. So then when I got his record, I think he's a six wrecker, and then I know what he'd done, and then I got war diaries, and stories he could have told you if you'd been able to. Yeah, yeah. Just, but, you know, so you do it to just... I remember asking my dad, uh, a, few, a few memories I've got of talking to him about it. One was when I was a young kid, probably 10, 11 years old, I guess. He was in the loft and he got um, a bayonet out. Oh. And he was explaining to me that he had this bayonet with him when he was at Dunkirk and he, he brought it back from Dunkirk with him. And uh, that's in the Green Howard's Museum in Richmond. It's not on display now, it was for a while. Yeah. Um, last time I was there, I actually saw it. They got it out from me and showed it to me, Ooh. so that was nice. Yeah. To my everlasting annoyance, I forgot to take a photograph of it. And I can't believe I didn't think, anyway, I'll, I'll go back and do it one day. But um, the point of the story is that I asked him 
did he ever kill kill anybody in the war? And you know, did he ever get close to people? And he, he said, well, no, not really. Some they were they were too yeah, probably did, but they were too far away for me to to know. To know, yeah. But I know that's that, I think he was protecting me from the truth because I know there was one episode in his war when they were it must have been Wadi Akaris. And they were they were sheltering behind a you know, piece of ground from some Italians, and his uh, and his lance corporal Coughlin stood up without having cover, and he and he got shot dead and dropped down next to next to my dad. And they were all so angry that their officer had been killed. They charged these Italians, and they were cowering in a trench and shot them all. And <laughs> but. My dad explained that in his memoir by the fact that what they'd learned from Dunkirk was no no quarter given, and and because if it hadn't been the Italians that were going to be shot, they'd have shot they'd, dad. Yeah. So that you know they probably did. But that particular incident, he must have been close enough to, to see the guy that he was shooting. He yeah. must have yeah. been, maybe not. Mostly, you never you never knew whether you shot anybody. No. Did you not? Because <laughs> the, the worst mistake I made. My biggest regret was losing the steel helmet with the with the bullet hole through the front. Uh, yeah. If I could have hung on to that, I, I also had the bullet dropped on me, and I flung it away. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking back, I should have held on to it, you know. No, you got to show for that as a blister. Yeah. It wasn't time to go, hand. though, was it? It wasn't his time to go. No. At the end of the day, you know, like straight, straight in the middle, it was there, you know, it, it, and you could push the metal back and drop them. What a shame and you it lost was, it. Ah. it. It dropped off the lorry onto the road. You lost it, didn't you? Drop it off a lorry or something? It, it dropped off the. Uh, we used to have them tied on the back of the pack, and it was bouncing about on the uh, three ton it. And it came loose and fell off the truck, and that, that's, that's all. It, it was bound, you know. I, I always had the hope that somebody had picked it up, you know, and it mm. would uh, eventually appear on, uh, you know, in the Imperial War Museum or something yeah. like that. Oh, you know. yes. Yeah. No, I bet it does exist somewhere. <laughs> I could, I could recognise it tomorrow. If, if yeah. I were to see it in the museum, you'd, you'd I could say that, that, that's the sealer yeah. that I was wearing. You know. Did it have your name on or out inside? Did you put your name on inside? Yes, it was have on you? the chin strap. Right. 475385 or W Shaw. They might have kept it and sold it yeah. all those years later on eBay or something oh, like that. Yeah. But the thing is, yeah. Wolf, when he tells you stuff, he doesn't just tell you good stuff, he does actually yeah. mention the bad things as well a couple of people I've spoken to you know, they just sort of gloss over it don't they whereas it's it tells you it tells it as it is like it was. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well so, yeah. whoever found his helmet probably picked it up and looked at it and thought well whoever, whoever's it was they must be dead <laughs> yeah did they ever show you the photograph of the German soldier I don't think oh. so is that Horn. In, is that in it was called Horn. H A U N. Is it in your book? I've it still got it. I think it will be in one of those. Yeah. I'll, I'll look out for it. What a dead one? A dead soldier? Yeah. He was. He, he, was, he was in Sicily, and he was exactly the same as is in the photograph. Smart bloke, and just lay there on his. Not a mark on him. Yeah. Where, where did the photograph come from? Then? 
the photograph, yeah. it was lying on the ground at side of him. Oh, I'm yeah, with you. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh? So he was dead and... Yeah. Right. I, sent, I, I found another one of an officer at... Uh, when Carmichael buggered off and left me, uh, there was a German <laughs> officer. German officer lay there, and uh, the same thing. And I, I took the trouble of sending it back to his family, and they wrote a letter back in a very accusing tone, asking me was other person who shot him. Would I go to the trouble of sending somebody a photograph? Dad, well, it's funnily enough, my dad found a photograph of two... Oh, he found two dead Germans during the Normandy campaign, and one of them had a photograph on him, and uh, we've, I've still got that. And I managed to trace where it was. They, they, they were dressed in uh, railway uniforms. Um, so, whether, But there were soldiers, obviously, at the time yeah. he found them. But I reckon if I really tried it through the German press, I could probably trace yeah. their families. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I got mixed feelings because, like, like you, you think it might might be just. I think there's enough years past that it probably wouldn't be distressing for anybody. But there's always been the thought: Well, did my dad kill them? Was he involved in shooting them? Yeah. Know. You know, a lot of people aren't really interested either, ever. No, no, they're not. You know, we're fully breeding, we can talk for hours about things, and just somebody's like, see their eyes glaze yeah. over, can't you, when they start talking? I must admit, it's nice chatting to you guys, because none, none of the friends I've got, well, they all had dads in the war in, in some shape or form, but they don't like immersing themselves in it as much no, as No, because it's like a hobby, you see, isn't it? It is, And yeah. it's like we even start talking about genealogy, because it, it, it's not... I went to the uh, military cemetery at Arnge, near, it's, in, it's not far from Ypres, in Belgium. Uh, a few weeks ago, we went out to, uh, to see Dunkirk and Normandy. You asked me earlier if I went to, if I'd seen any of the military cemeteries. Yeah. Um, and yes, I have. I've, I've been to Bayer, because I went to Bayer later on that yeah. over those days. But the one I went to see at Arnge was a particular comrade of Dad's that was killed during the Dunkirk Lieutenant Hewson he was he fired on a on a tank Hewson Hewson yeah John McColgan Hewson right and I found his grave and I paid my respect oh, on Dad's yeah. behalf yeah but he, he, he shot this tank up and as he was as he was reloading the, the smoke from his gun gave him his position away uh, and, and they took him out Oh, do you know when I went? To, well, I'd never been to any like. Well, I've been to Bayer yes. when we've been to Normandy on motorbike on an holiday. I said I'd like to go and have a look. Yeah. Um, but when I went to Italy, we went. And, uh, I saw Recky Graves. Well, I saw them all, but all Recky Graves all lined up. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't even read all the things they wrote about him. It just choked me up completely. Got really emotional knowing it would be dad's. I think you I know. I got more emotional at Bayer. There's one in, one thing at Bayer where there's 11 graves, uh, 15 gravestones, all six green houses that were all killed in the same incident. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they were all ambushed in a cornfield, and that was quite emotional seeing them. Yeah. Um, Casino, you know, 
There's not a casino in the yeah. casino. casino. That is a, a vast cemetery. But I find the smaller ones are more intimate. Yes. You know, it's uh, they're laid out nice. But I think when I went higher up, you know, because everybody is, it's either it's either D Day in it or it's casino. It's or there's never any other conflicts, is there? Um, when we got further up towards the Venice, some of the cemeteries, couple of cemeteries there, I saw wreckage lined up, 56 wreckage lined up. And right. um, you know, you think they got through it worse there, but that must have been like one particular incident or something. And you get, you some of the most up. impressive cemeteries up in Holland. Right? Oh, they say that, yeah, yeah. We 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 went uh, on a trip to Holland. You know, we were invited there. And, uh, we had we had the service on a Sunday morning, you know, stood among all the gravestones yeah. and a, a great, the usual, very impressive cross they have, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you about Holland because um, after D-Day, presumably you were involved in all the fighting that took place after after D-Day up to Nijmegen. Yeah. I was in all the lot right up to Arnhem. Yeah. I mean, there was horrendous, long, grinding out fighting. Yeah. That yeah. Uh, we, we, we uh, the big breakthrough came at Falaise. That's that's where things began to break up. Right. Listener, I'd just like to interject at this point to. Uh, provide some background to the battle that Wilf's about to talk about. Um, the Battle of Falaise. According to Wikipedia, uh, this was around the middle of August 1944, so a couple of months after D-Day, and it ended with a German defeat. It was the decisive engagement of the Battle of Normandy, and uh, the Germans were encircled by allies, and the battle resulted in the destruction of most of Army Group B, west of the Seine, and this opened up the way to Paris. Um, historians estimate up to 100,000 troops were caught in the encirclement, of whom around 15,000 were killed and 50,000 were taken prisoner. Eisenhower recorded that the battlefield at Falaise was unquestionably one of the greatest killing fields of any of the war areas. 48 hours after the closing of the gap, I was conducted through it on foot to encounter scenes that could only be described by Dante. It was literally possible to walk for hundreds of yards at a time, stepping on nothing but dead and decaying flesh. That was, that was the point where uh, I told you Carmichael buggered off and left me after I'd helped, helped him to put a six pounder on the back of a jeep went back to get me uh, 18 yes. set turned round he'd gone <laughs> that, the back of the Falaise Gap that were nasty uh, wasn't it that were about you know it, it was absolute chaos I looked through it and it, I remember looking through a, a hedge and there's there's a tank with your bloody black crosses on you know wow. and it was just chaos really all the Germans were mixed in among us and panic all over the bloody yeah. place. Yeah. I think most of the time nobody was bothering to kill anybody. They were too bloody interested in getting out of it, you know. Yeah. And whichever, yeah. whichever direction they went in, 
because they were, they were absolutely surrounded in the Falle Gap. It, it, it had narrowed to, uh, and uh, one officer described Falaise. He said he was virtually walking on dead bodies at Falaise because they were they were compressed and caught <coughs> and shut the trap, and the aircraft were coming in and telling uh, them. The next podcast I do is going to be about Major Petch, who is my dad's commanding officer at the time of Dunkirk. And I've tracked down his family, and he's written some papers and memoirs and letters around Dunkirk. And he's telling one little anecdote about an officer that was lost in the middle of nowhere one night on his bike. And he, and he saw a tank and he stopped and knocked on the door of the tank to ask where the, you know, where his unit was. And this German came to the door, so he, he scarfed, and, and that was it. So obviously the German didn't come after him. And oh, wow. <laughs> can you imagine it? Well, it's like when, when you have a dream and you, you're having a nightmare and you're running away from somebody and that's beating up on the door and bugging and bogeyman's in the house as well. That must be really frightening, oh, no. I had, to, um, I had to laugh at one point. You know that that interview you were doing. Yeah. Um, this woman, you'd obviously given her your paperwork, and she'd read through it, and that enabled her to maybe direct the questioning in an appropriate way when she interviewed you. Anyway, she'd ask a question, and, you, and, you, and you'd say something like, "Well, it's in." This is an exaggeration, right? But you'd say, "Well, it's in the book. Haven't you read it?" <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? Well, it, it's, it's like it was, it's like a rose. <laughs> at one point, it was like getting blood out of a stone blesser. <laughs> but I knew I knew where you were coming from. Mind you, uh, it's pretty difficult at ninety odd year old. Yeah. Oh, of course it is, absolutely. Your war finished. Oh, the Green Howards War in Holland finished it. Was it Nijmegen? It was uh, just after Nijmegen, it, uh, after we'd been over on the island at Arnhem. Right. It was, it was Arnhem where they pulled us out. We were supposed to go in and relieve the... Uh, was, it, was it the 6th Airborne or 1st first, first Airborne, one of them? Right. But... The, they got a hell of a battering and uh, actually uh, they didn't think it was worth worthwhile us going to try and relieve them, you know. Right. And they pulled us out, brought us back to Rousselaer in Belgium and we were divided into uh, uh, A, B and C uh, sections. Fred Zilke, my mate, was in A which meant they, they were brought back to England and put on the, in the barracks at Richmond. But uh, the B group, which uh, I was part of, we were sent to Northern Ireland uh, to uh, Warren Point and uh, I was there for a long time. And they, but eventually uh, I finished up with Fred Zilkin back on the switchboard at Pickering, North York. Oh, York. Yes. When you were told you were going back to England, what were you doing at that point? Were you just getting set for another day, 
another day's fighting or well uh, we had a good idea of what we were being brought back for you ah, know okay. but that was the end of our war really Rusalair where they broke us up what's it I finished up doing the extra, I had six months left. My ANS group, Asian Service Group, was 31, which was one too many, <laughs> too many to stay in doing. So they sent me to Cyprus for six months, and that's where I finished the war. Did you ever used to do um, patrol? Yeah, we used to go out on patrol there. Uh, no man's land was uh, 20, no, 20 miles of no man's land right, and the Germans used to send out patrols this way and we, we were, when we were at Gazala. Right. Can you remember anything about it then? What, any little yeah, I, rem experience? I remember one occasion going out on patrol uh, in the three tonner and uh, the desert sand was so fine and the blokes obviously it was hot and sweating yeah. and uh, the sand the fine sand used to stick to them and I remember looking round at the blokes and they were just like graven images you know but anyhow we went out and went out and leading us was this South African armoured car and periodically it kept stopping and this went on for a while. We kept driving out on and on, you know, out into the, yeah. into the desert. And then one occasion, he pulled up and uh, he looked, starts giving a commentary of what was going on in front. He obviously spotted a, a patrol, a German patrol coming in the opposite direction, you know. And uh, he starts saying that they were wheeling a they were wheeling a field, piece of field artillery and pointing in our direction, like. And the next day, next minute it was bloody panic stations and uh, we were churning away as fast as we could, like, you know. Yeah. Anyhow, nothing came in our direction. But, uh, yeah. but it might have been if you'd stood there watching the scenery. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. at one point they told us to debuzz and scatter, you know. And then it must. And then he gone on about the gun being uh, uh, focused in our direction, you know. And uh, we were all back on the three tonners and back churning uh, away like nobody, nobody's business, you know. Uh, I remember one little episode in Dad's uh, memoir from North Africa. They were out in a, on a three-tonner or something in the middle of the desert and a, a, snow, a sandstorm came Oh, uh, I, I experienced that once. Did you? Yeah. And I remember this particular day, and we said, what's that in the distance, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it was, ob it, it was obviously the sandstorm. And then it hit us, yeah. and everything filled with, with, with sand, you know. Yeah. And the one thing you had to look after was, uh, in such circumstances, was the yeah, Lee Enfield rifle, you know. Right. Yeah. You had to keep that covered, like, you know. I remember this, the uh, sergeant saying to us, like, uh, telling us about if anything like that happened, he said, treat your rifle 
better than you would treat your wife when you're married. So you, it was a question of throwing your wife out of bed or the uh, Lee Enfield rifle, you threw your wife out of bed. God. You, you had all kinds of anecdotes like that about uh, what to do under certain circumstances. You know, he's going to tell a good yarn because his eyes light up and you know it's going to be a joke at the end of it, you know. That was priceless, wasn't it? Oh. Did you, on this particular occasion, were you like in tents or in a lorry or were you out in the open and, and you had the sandstorm? Oh, we, we, we were dug in, yeah, it, it, oh, just in the open. Yeah. We weren't on a truck or anything, you know. Yeah. No, this was when, when we were dug in at Gazala. And uh, we had to, there was so much sand, we had to more or less uh, dig, throw it all out of the sea. Well, thanks again so much to you, Will, for all that. Some really good stuff there. Will was 97 in February 2017. Long may you keep trespassing, my old chum. Thank you to Leslie too for your contribution, and in particular for persistently bringing the conversation about the shufty kite back to the matter in hand and preventing Wilf and me from rambling off tack. If it wasn't for Leslie, I'm not sure you'd have ever found out what a shufty kite was. Listener, have you got any confounding war terms to tease us all with? Do write in and let me know if you'd like to share them with everyone else. Next episode. In episode 23, I'm looking forward to a third coffee with Wilf Shaw, and this is going to follow Hoss on the heels of this episode. Here's a short taster. Me and him were out repairing a line that had been uh, broken by shell fire. Telephone line. Yeah. And uh, this uh, thundering sound coming, coming towards you, sir. And I told him to run like me, you know, you know. And they refused to, they refused to get on You were put on a boat and yeah. they thought they were going back to their own unit. Yeah. They weren't. Some refused to go on board. They sent That's... it. And that was when the bloke called Henry Jeffries and the uh, picked one up and uh, to carry him to safety, you know. Henry Jeffries, he had his back uh, exposed to the line of fire, you know. There you go, that's just some of the happenings you'll hear about in episode 23, A Third Coffee with Wilf. If you want to comment on or share what you've heard so far, you can do so via the contact page at Fighting Through Podcast. Dot co dot uk you might even have ideas or contributions which could appear in a future show including the my relative was in the war and they once told me dot 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 feature thank you so much for downloading me if you're enjoying the show please do nip to the review section on your listening app and offer a rating or review do hang on for the ps You've been listening to the Fighting Through Podcast. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. P.S. 
I'm going to close the show now with one final Wilf story. But first, one final request for you to consider sponsoring the show through patreon.com slash fighting through or just go to fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk and click on the donate button. Thank you very much if you're able to. Here's Wilf with one final story. When we were first went in to ask all the specialist signalers and brain gun carriers, MT, we were all put into uh, the, our bed with the horses' stables. And uh, over the, the name over at the stable I was, was Farmer. And we were tuned to a thing and. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what my mate said, he said I can just imagine this horse and all bollocks and backbone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you never did get to see it? Did no, we, we, no. Didn't, we didn't see any of the horses, the horses had been taken out, yeah. but uh, that was the accommodation that they gave to us with the horses stalled. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. And Presumably it had been cleaned out and it was fresh hair laid for you. <laughs> Later we were moved into one of the rooms joining uh, Ascol's, you know. A-S-K-E, Ascol. So where was that? Where was it? Where is Ascol? Richmond. Richmond, ah, okay. Ah, Wilf, <laughs> happy days and happy memories from frolicking around in the horse's hay. Um, the MT that Wilf's just referred to was Motor Transport Division, and the Ask Hall he referred to was at Richmond, Yorkshire, which was where the Green Howard's Regimental Headquarters was based. Ask Hall was a Georgian country house which was used for specialist training such as wireless operating or gunnery. If any listener wants to read another short memoir about Ask Hall by a chap called Harry Free, I'm putting a link in the show notes. It's quite entertaining, a little bit of nostalgia um, to entertain you by. Bye-bye now. See you soon.